Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. Today, I was able to conclude a series entitled Surface and Substance by looking beyond the surface into the substance of who Jesus is and what that means for us as individuals and the individuals who make up the church. Uh, Polish sociologist and philosopher uh, Zygmunt Bauman coined the term liquid modernity. Liquid modernity. For his theory that in the contemporary world, in our world, the rate of change has become so accelerated that no customs or institutions have time to solidify. Consequently, this liquid modernity has produced what Bauman later coined liquid fear, a tangible feeling of anxiety that has only vague contours but is still acutely present everywhere. Liquid modernity producing liquid fear that is acutely present everywhere. Anxiety. According to Bauman, these are the pillars of our contemporary world. And I don't know if you guys sense those, if you feel those things. Liquid modernity and liquid fear. In contrast, the church, which debatedly includes the Roman Catholic tradition, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and for many of us, the Protestant tradition, has existed For more than 2,000 years, rooted in the eternal and unchanging truths of the kingdom of God. Truths that have been revealed by God, accounted for in the scriptures, carried throughout the centuries, and clung to by men and women believers who have been native to Africa and the Middle East, Europe and Asia, the Americas and Australia. Truths that have become the very substance of Christianity. And ultimately, that is our question. What is the substance of Christianity? More accurately, who is the substance of the Christian faith, tradition, and church? We find an answer, and we'll put this up on the screen. Uh, in In 1871, this was written by a guy named Henry Ward Beecher, He's the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, the abolitionist. He wrote, Here's the sum and substance of Christianity. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. This is the whole of Christianity in the same way that an acorn is the whole of a tree. In contrast to our contemporary liquid world that's ever-changing, where customs and institutions never have time to solidify, the church has endured because of one person. This person, uh, the scriptures proclaim, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Historically, he's known as Jesus of Nazareth. Within the church, he's referred to as the Lord Jesus. A single figure at the center 
and as the cornerstone of the whole entire church. This Jesus is often misunderstood, misquoted, misrepresented, and sometimes altogether missed. But what Beecher says is that this Christ, and get this, your peculiar access to him is the whole of Christianity in the same way that an acorn is the whole of a tree. To help us understand this today, uh, we'll consider the significance of Jesus in three specific ways. And here they are, so you can write them down. Jesus is the substance of God. Jesus binds believers. And Jesus is yours. For those of you who are with us for the first time or tuned in through our City Church app or podcast, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us. My name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. This is the second part of a series that I've entitled Surface and Substance. As I said last week, the approach that I'll take to this sermon is a little bit different than a typical Sunday here at City Church. Usually, uh, we approach the scriptures expositionally. So we look at the text within context, verse by verse to understand the meaning. But as I said last week, I'm deviating from that because these are essentially my last sermons here at City Church before my wife and daughter and I move in August. So as I prepare to move, uh, my hope is that I leave City better than how I found her. And to that end, I'm sharing my concern, which I said last week, that much of evangelical Christianity floats on the surface of a vast ocean of substance. Last week, I suggested that we need to be thinking about, discussing, and understanding the place and the influence of culture, technology, and sex in relationship to the body of believers that make up the church and our individual responsibility while we're here on this earth. This week, we turn our attention to Jesus again in three uh, specific ways. As I said, the first is that Jesus is the substance of of God. There's no uh, shortage of debates and disagreements about not only who Jesus is, but what Jesus is. You can find all of those debates uh, raging today, and as you look back through history, you discover that all of the debates have roots. And they make a lot of sense if we as Christians could sort of set our theology uh, to the side or set our feelings to the side and just hear the debates, they make a lot of sense because the orthodox claim of Christianity is not only that there was a historical Jesus of Nazareth who had a life and had a reputation, but most importantly that this Jesus of Nazareth was in fact simultaneously a man and God. He was human and divine. That's a huge claim. This belief is uniquely Christian. And throughout the first few hundred years of the Christian church, it was discussed and finessed. And its history can be traced throughout the great ecumenical creeds, ending at the Chalcedonian Creed in 451. Don't let me bore you with the history. Stick with me now. We've got to build a little context. 
But since this creed was established in 451, the definition has been the standard orthodox definition of the biblical teaching of the person of Jesus. Again, Christians believe that Jesus is fully man and yet simultaneously fully God. In contrast, Jews do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they deny that Jesus uh, was God. Muslims, among other things, believe that Jesus was no more than a messenger and that Allah did not beget a son. Buddhists deny Jesus' divinity as the exclusive means to salvation and they believe in merit as a means of liberation or nirvana. Hindus believe that Jesus was a created being. And Mormons also believe that Jesus was a created being. And listen to me now. That's not to minimize these religions into their take on Jesus. Obviously, all of these religions, faiths, and traditions are comprised of much more than that. But again, I'm drawing out a contrast between these religions and Christianity. Focused on this first consideration that Jesus is the substance of God. If you will, turn with me uh, in your Bible to the Gospel of John, just the very beginning of John, John chapter 1. And you can also find a digital Bible and all of my sermon notes on the City Church app. I'm going to be sharing a lot today. All of the notes are in the app, so follow along with me. And after church, listen to this. Go back. Listen to it again. Study it some more. Don't let it just be contained within these few minutes. So I'm going to show uh, in in John chapter 1, starting at verse 1 and then ending at verse 18, we're not going to read all of those verses, this idea that Jesus is the substance of God. So there again at verse 1, and it will show up on the screen. Here's what John writes. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Skipping down to verse 14. The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace and place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the incarnation that the word became flesh. Speaking of this scripture, the African bishop, St. Augustine, wrote about this and the doctrine of the Incarnation in his early 400s book entitled, On the Holy Trinity. Here's what he had to say. Now, this is a bit antiquated uh, and a bit long, so stick with me. I'm just giving you the heads up from the jump. You can do it. I believe in you. You're intelligent. So stick with me, even though it's antiquated and long. And again, this is in my sermon notes if you want to follow along. So again, here's Augustine on the Incarnation in the early 400s. But herein 
referencing this first John scripture is declared not only that he, Jesus, is God, but also that he is of the same substance with the Father. Because after saying, and the word was God, it is said also in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made. Not simply all things, but only all things that were made. That is the whole creature or all of creation. It appears clearly that he himself was not made by whom all things were made. And if he was not made, then he is not a creature. If he is not a creature, then he is of the same substance with the Father. For all substance that is not God is creature. And all that is not creature is God. And if the Son is not of the same substance with the Father, then he is a substance that was made. And if he is a substance that was made, then all things were not made by him, but all things were made by him. Therefore, he is of one and the same substance with the Father. Download finished breathe. Good job. Now this is seen elsewhere. This is in the book of Hebrews, which we read it. Hebrews 1, 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And throughout the letter to the Colossian church, we read Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We read that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. And then we also read that in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus was not a nice guy with nice teaching for nice people. If he was, I never would have became a preacher because I'm not a nice dude. If you know me well enough, you say amen. Jesus was not an example of how to live a life that pleases God. Jesus did not set the bar that we must attain to get to heaven or to reach nirvana or to find liberation or enlightenment. Jesus is the exclusive, one and only, often imitated, never duplicated, incarnated God in the flesh. Simultaneously, fully man and fully God, one-third of the Trinity, Father, Spirit, and son. Jesus is the substance of God. Next, and as a consequence, Jesus binds believers. Jesus binds believers. Last week, I spent some time discussing the need to create and cultivate a binding culture. Uh, one that exists beyond politics and socioeconomics, things only concerned with the kingdom of this world. A culture that's concerned ultimately with the kingdom of God. In addition, I shared Rod Dreher's comments from the Benedict Option on Protestants, who is us, non-Catholic Christians, disagreeing over interpretation As a result of the Reformation, without any authority beyond Scripture, we've been left to the tides of interpretation. And I shared that in the last 500 years since the Reformation, 10,000 Protestant denominations have 
come into being. There has been and there is much division within Christianity, yet Jesus binds believers. Let me show you why I say that. The Apostle John, the same John that wrote uh, the previous John that we looked at in chapter 1, had a vision when he was uh, in exile on an island called Patmos, which is a Greek island. He wrote about this vision, and here's an excerpt of that vision. He says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I'm sure you know this, but the book of Revelation is John's vision of the end of time, the end of this age. And what he saw, get this, what he saw was an innumerable mass of people made up of every nation, every tribe, every group, and every language. They were all gathered before the Lord. They were crying out together that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb who is Jesus. Every nation, every tribe, every group, every language, they're bound together. Now I'm going to, you know, go 2017 on you to help explain some of this, all right? You all may recall just a few months ago, uh, Kendall Jenner was drugged through the dirt for starring in a Pepsi commercial. You guys remember this? Is that a resounding no? <laughs> Tough crowd. And I actually like Kendall, man. You know, I'm, let me keep it 100. My wife and I have watched a little bit of the Kardashians, and by a little bit, maybe all of the seasons. And like, I don't watch them. My wife watches them, right? So I just come into the house and she's watching them. So I'll, okay, anyway. So I really dig Kendall. I think that like she is the most sensible sister. She seems kind of low-key, humble to herself. I dig Kendall. So it kind of hurt my feelings when she got caught up in all of this. But nonetheless, she did. This Pepsi commercial was scored uh, by a revolutionary Skip Marley song. We see a surge of people flooding the streets, making their way somewhere. Where are they going? They're united. And as a sign of the times, they're protesting. Handmade signs, fists up, moving in one body, even though they're made up of every ethnicity. Men and women, young and old. While all of this is going on, Kendall's having a photo shoot. Just like a few feet from the street where all of these people are. And somehow, no one notices her just like splaying out all over the place. Because all the people are united in love. That's what their signs say. And as we know, love is blind, so they don't see Kendall having the photo shoot. But they get Kendall's attention. And in the climax of the song, Kendall rips off her wig and she wipes off her lipstick, and she takes off her costume, and she hits the street, joins the surging mass. Well, infamously at this point, she makes her way to the front of the protesters, giving a pound to a couple brown brothers. (laughs) It's absurd. 
With a Pepsi in her hand, she crosses the protest line, approaches a police officer, and gifts him with the all-unifying, iconic, 12-ounce aluminum Pepsi can. He drinks it, the protesters erupt, and just like that, Pepsi binds people of all nations, tribes, groups, and languages. Needless to say, the commercial was torn to shreds. Pepsi removed it, uh, but it lives on in YouTube infamy. So if you haven't seen it, check it out this afternoon. As a quick aside, this is an example of what I was talking about last week when I said the secular mainstream takes hold of extremely controversial and extremely significant social and political issues to monetize them to cash in on our concerns and our convictions. Pepsi makes a commercial inserting themselves as the benevolent binding for our frayed, troubling, and turbulent times. That should insult us. I know a coffee shop in town that celebrated the federal legalization of gay marriage with the convenient sale of a beverage. We're getting taken advantage of. Corporations are playing on our fears and our concerns. And we go to them with our money thinking that they support us. They don't. They're just trying to sell their stuff. In contrast to the trite unity presented by Pepsi, the Apostle John wrote about a vision of the future where all people are gathered and unified. And simultaneously, they don't lose their individuality. They maintain their nationality. They maintain their tribal heritage, their people group, and their native tongue. And yet, they're unified because of the salvation that God has accomplished for all people. Do you guys see that? The unifier is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Which is why I say that Jesus binds believers. To that end, uh, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter spend immense amounts of time. You see this all throughout the New Testament. Seeking to get Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, to understand that because they both believe in this Jesus as Messiah, they're unified. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and again here he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles. We'll pull it up on the screen. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Whether Jews or Gentile, slave or free, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. There are many parts, but one body. God has put the body together so that there should be no division in the body. Now you are the body of Christ in each of you. Is a part of it. Jesus binds believers. And even though that's the eternal objective reality, as I've been saying, division does seem to be our human tendency. Don't you guys sense uh, sort of our inability to get past our separate little conglomerations? We tend to be divided. Brother Martin Luther King Jr. said that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most divided hour in America. And unfortunately, we started this service at 11 a.m. So look around. Is that still true 50 years later? While I do uh, agree with Martin that race and class, education and interpretation 
all contribute to Christian division. I was listening to a podcast recently. It's called The Bible for Normal People. And if that rings a bell, check it out sometime. I heard something while I was listening to that in regards to Christian division that I think is fascinating and insightful. Episode 6, The Bible for Normal People, featured an interview uh, with A.J. Levine. Get this. She's a Jewish agnostic professor of the New Testament and Jewish studies at the Vanderbilt Divinity School. Jewish ethnically agnostic in regards to her belief, professor of the New Testament as her profession. On this interview, this podcast, she was asked by a Christian host, how could Christians learn from engaging and emulating the tradition of Judaism? How can Christians learn from the tradition of Judaism? She erupts, what a fabulous question. I think Christians should argue more because it's healthy. One of the hosts, a Christian, said almost dismissively, oh, we do that, believe me. And she said, yeah, but you don't do it like the Jews. And here's what she goes on to say, which I think is so important as we think about Christian division. She said, the reason we can argue so well is because at the end of the day, we're all still Jews. Jews never settle down just to be a religion and just to be a belief system. Jews have always kept an ethnic component or a peoplehood component to who we are. So our arguments take place in the family. And at the end of the day, you're all still brothers and sisters and parents and children. What happens in Christian communities is if you argue too much, if you disagree too much, you put yourself out of the communion because If you get into a tradition by belief, you get out by belief. I think that's fascinating and so telling of Christian division. We need to realize that Jesus binds believers. And the absolute primary foundation, center, and cornerstone of all of Christianity is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for all of humanity. And beyond that, we must be willing to place peripheral issues in the periphery. We're a family united in Christ. Doctrine and theology and interpretation are hugely important. But ultimately, they'll never serve to unite all believers. Especially if we, all of the believers, actually and authentically include people of every nation language, tribe, and tongue. Jesus binds believers. I've repeated that the unifier is who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but it's essential to realize who Jesus has lived for, died for, resurrected for, and who even now he advocates for. The who is you and me. 
Jesus has lived, died, resurrected, and now advocates for you and for me, which is what brings us to the third significance of Jesus. Jesus is yours. He's yours. Now I realize how odd that sounds to both the believer and the non-believer. To the believer in Jesus, you know like that Jesus wasn't in your car this morning. Uh, You know, he's not in your pocket now, and you didn't write him off on your taxes this year. To the non-believer curious about Christianity, you're not really sure who this Jesus guy is. And to those who are skeptical, you're not even sure if this Jesus guy is. I understand that. I realize how odd this sounds, but stick with me. Much of all of religious thought including much of Christian religious thought, presents the complete opposite view or idea. Not that God is yours, not that Christ is yours, but that God is removed and disgruntled, that we have the burden of appeasing him or reaching him or evading him because we relate to what Johnny Cash sang, sooner or later God will cut you down. But if you recall what Beecher wrote, the sum and substance of Christianity is that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And he said that this is the whole of Christianity in the same way that an acorn is the whole of a tree. The Jesus who is the substance of God, the Jesus who binds believers, this Jesus is yours. That's the whole of Christianity. Throughout the Old Testament, the revelation of God foretold one who would be born of a virgin, the seed of a woman, the descendant of Abraham, through whom all nations would find favor. One who would be a willing sacrifice, one who would be the Passover lamb, a Messiah, a Savior who would come to all of his people. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 reads, and we'll put this up on the screen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Nearly a thousand years later, one thousand years later, Prior to Jesus' birth, an angel speaks to Joseph, the husband of Mary, Jesus' mother, and he uses these words. The angel tells Joseph, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Ladies and gentlemen, God is with all of us. Hear the words of this uh, Jesus, this Emmanuel, this God with us. And see if it doesn't rub up against some of the ideas that you hold core about a God who's far off, removed, displeased, and disgruntled. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God is not far. God is near. God is with us. But scandalously, even beyond our own comprehension, God has extended himself, made himself available to us, as it were. But he's a gentleman, so he won't force his way on anyone. 
Listen again to something John wrote in the record of his vision, that Revelation account. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. Like a gentleman does. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me, Jesus is yours to the believer and to the non-believer. But the question is, will you have him? Undoubtedly, some of you uh, are asking or thinking, uh, but how do I take possession of Jesus? How do I make him mine? Uh, The answer is simple, and it almost insults our intellect and our sense of self-righteousness. The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus. He incarnated for you. He lived for you. He died for you. And at this very moment, he is for you. He's for your flourishing. He's for your thriving. This is the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for men and women. There's no work for us to do. There's nothing that we can add or subtract to the salvation that Christ has accomplished. If you've never believed, I encourage you to do so now. In the privacy of your seat. And unto yourself. We live in a liquid modernity which produces liquid fear and anxiety associated with how temporal and how uncertain our world is. And even how uncertain our very lives are. When you believe in Jesus, something permanent and unchanging happens. As Beecher wrote, Jesus takes up residence in you. In your heart and in your life. That's a mystery and that's a reality. To this end, uh, Jesus indwelling the believer, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 3 I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through. Faith, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp theology, doctrine, interpretation. Nah. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If you've yet to believe, I pray that you know the love of Christ as the ultimate reality of eternity. And for those of you who have long been believers, Jesus is the very substance of God. Jesus binds believers and he is yours. Which begs the question, are you accepting anything less than Christ? The very substance of God for your satisfaction, for your assurance, and for your reality. It came down on me like a ton of bricks uh, in blessed assurance. The line, in the Savior, I am happy and blessed. And I was just reminded that nowhere else can I sustainably be happy and blessed. In Christ. That's our reality. 
If we're not making Christ uh, our satisfaction, our assurance, our reality, we're robbing ourselves and we're robbing others around us from the experience of the fullness of Christ in us. Another question to the believers, are you bound by Jesus to believers? Believers that you dig and that you agree with and believers that frankly you don't like and you kind of think they're on to some nonsense as well. The church is made up of a vast host of people with differing opinions, interpretations, theologies, and doctrines. But Christ is what binds us together. Are you bound to other believers? And while Jesus is yours, irrevocably and undisputably, like, doesn't mean anything to you. I know you come to church on Sunday. I love seeing your pretty faces. But what happens before church and after church? What happens when you're alone and when you're thinking to yourself, what are your dreams and your ambitions? Does Christ really mean anything to you? Let's do away with the surface for the substance of who Christ is and everything that Christ offers us. As the prince of preachers said, Spurgeon, if Christ be anything, he must be everything. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, I'm reminded that in you alone, uh, Jesus, in you, the Savior, I am happy and blessed. I confess and repent that I often seek uh, to find happiness and blessing, purpose, uh, substance, sustenance, life outside of you, Lord Jesus. I don't think that angers you. I don't think that you uh, withdraw from me. Um, I don't think your love is changed. Uh, but I suffer, and I think in my suffering, uh, you're saddened because you've accomplished everything that I may have all things in you. Jesus, if you be anything, you must be everything. And I realize that starts in my own life. I pray the same for uh, the life of the believers who are gathered here, who are hearing this sermon. I pray the same for the life, uh, witness, testimony, longevity of City Church. That Jesus, if you're anything, you will be everything for us. God, we thank you for your love for us, which is seen clearly and compellingly in the person, work, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus is the substance of God. Jesus binds believers, and Jesus is yours. We have a saying at City Church that goes like this, the cross changes everything. And I'll leave you with a Charles Spurgeon quote, if Jesus be anything, he must be everything. Thank you again for tuning in to the City Church Evansville podcast. We'd love for you to join us sometime. We meet at 9.15 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.